welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, laying behind the machine, and to my virtual front, it's... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. Hello, Sebastian. How's it going? Doing great, and you? I'm recovering. Last week, we were so tiny on the screen, I feel like I was shrunken, so I'm, I'm glad to be back to this semi-normal size. One day, we'll be in person again. Um, whatever, it's just too easy to do these virtual ones. Um, but while we're virtual, that we do an easier topic today is a... We haven't done one of these in a while, actually, an advice light non-theological non-response video um and this topic is our favorite books of the bible wow very christian um, hopefully we'll make it kind of interesting uh, to start off with before we get into our favorite books and why um, what are some typical books if you had to name like two typical books um, that you think people normally say they like i've got a couple ideas um, what would you say people non-cool hipster people like us would normally say your typical average christian I can imagine James being up there. James is one I've heard. Uh, my fiance has said James is one of her favorites. So I guess she's just average normal. You know, people. Yeah, I guess people know James is a book, right? Surely. I'm trying to think that every layman Christian hasn't read their Bible, period. So, uh, or you know, they've read a book or something like that. So that's I would generally think that Christians haven't read the Bible or there's no of the Bible, and so they pick books that are famous, you know, like. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels, and people normally know that those are the Gospels, even Catholics, because that's all they recite, essentially, at Catholic Mass. And so I would say those are probably some common top ones. Genesis and Exodus are common ones, and then Revelation, because it is the last book. Also Proverbs, because Proverbs is a word in English, and so Proverbs is, and Psalms. Those are probably the most famous. So I would figure that those are the top ones just because they're typical books that people know. It's not very interesting to have as your top ones. Um, but speaking of interesting, let's go over our top. We'll, we'll go over the, we'll trade off. I'll say my number one, Sebastian, and you say your number one, and then we'll defend our top picks and, uh, and versus each other. So before I even get into that, prefacing, why are we even ranking books of the Bible? We'll say, we believe truly and with all our heart that the Bible is the word of God. So all of the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It's not directly written by God, but the words are inspired by God. Therefore, they are true and uh, worthy of, of examination and memorization and praise. So we will not be ranking them based off like some of them are untrue or crappy or lies. They're just some of them are more striking than others, more useful than others. And I don't think it's a knock on the word of God to say that Obadiah is an inherently less useful book than Matthew, you know, said it. it He's it listening right now, Michael. It, He's listening. It doesn't right mean now. that Obadiah is not the word of God, or that it's that it's less the word of God, or has lies or something like that. It's just a smaller book with less in it for a more particular purpose. Equally, um, the Song of Solomon is a less useful book than Daniel, but that doesn't mean the Song of Solomon is a bad book. Um, so, in any case, all that being said, here's our rank and file of our top five books, and and um, we can also speak to our least favorite books but once again the least favorite books don't mean that they're not the word of god or that we dislike the books as a thing they're just our least favorite of the top so without further ado sebastian what is your number one book of the bible totally first enoch just <laughs> kidding that is definitely not, not part of the bible <laughs> not in the bible sorry ethiopians but that's not in the bible you know, yeah. maybe give your own preface, actually, Sebastian, because you like to do this. How would you defend what we currently have in the Bible? We've done this on other episodes, so it's not going to be our full in-depth talk on how we got today's Bible. But you want to give a brief synopsis of why the books that we have in the Bible are in the Bible in the first place? 
Yes, yeah, so we do know that the holy books would have been laid in the Holy of Holies, the Temple of Jerusalem. So at least that's how we know that we how we have the Old Testament. Josephus attests to the books. Josephus, a famous his, Jewish historian from the first century, attests of books that were held holy by the Jews. And then for the New Testament, we there were, there was issues with Gnosticism. Keep it short and. and and sweet. You can tell by theology which is Gnostic and then which is consistent and ties, weaves, very important, weaves back to the Old Testament as fulfillment mm -hmm. or as a continuation. If you read something like the, um, like the Gospel of, of uh, Thomas or Secret Revelation of Peter or Secret Re Revelation of John, they detest Yahweh in the Old Testament. They detest uh, the prophets, so or poke fun of the physical body. So clearly, that's how we know those are not part of the Bible because they are a clear break with the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's as short as I can make it. Yeah, and I think philosophically, we believe that God can reveal things to His people, and that He has understandably revealed some word to His people, whatever that, whatever those words are, whatever books those are, in some sort of written form, and so. What are those books? Where are they? And if they are hidden someplace that haven't been revealed, well, we would we would attest that those aren't the word of God because he gave them for his people to hear. So they're, they're somewhere in the canon that we know of. Um, whether we accept them or not in the canon is a different question. And then two, his word is consistent and true because God is not a liar. So we would again hold that the Gnostic Gospels are pretty plainly not consistent with the Old Testament. They're not consistent with the rest of the books of the New Testament, and sometimes they contradict each other or internally contradict each other. So we would hold that those are self-apparently not part of the canon of Scripture. Um, of course, the early church also saw those same things about those early Gnostic Gospels. They came about in like the first couple centuries of the church, and many History Channel buffs will be like, the church is hiding this one, and it has something to do with Jesus having wives and whatever else. And, and those are interesting theories that I guess make weird newspapers that if people, if non-Christians still care about Jesus, they make newspapers, but um, they aren't, we didn't choose the books of the Bible because the church picked them. The church picked them because, picked the books of the New Testament because they are the word of God, not the other way around. The church did not decide what was the word of God and put it in. So we would claim that the revelation of God is self-apparent in the books that were chosen for the New Testament. And then of course the Old Testament, the Jews were of the same um, system, right? They, they had self-apparent books that were self-apparently scripture. Either they had prophecy that came true, um, they were consistent with each other, they were given by prophets that were known to be prophets, etc. So those books were held up in the temple, like you were saying, Sebastian, and so the Jews judged them to be holy, whereas they judged a different subset of books to be important, but not scripture. And that subset of books is what we refer to as the Apocrypha. It's an additional, I'm going to get this wrong, 11 books, something like that, added to the Bible. They're not scripture. They weren't considered by the Jews to be scripture, but they are added in some versions of the Bible, namely the Catholics typically use the Apocrypha. And of course, the Catholics in the attempt to be different and the attempt to be um, as wildly inconsistent as possible have now called them scripture as well, um, just not the Bible level scripture. So they attest that those books are true. We would attest that they are not. They are just writings infallible like anything else. So that's why we don't consider books of the Apocrypha as holy scripture. We only consider the 66 canon books of scripture as God's word. And again, we've talked nice. about that more in depth in the past. So if you want to go to our other episodes about the Bible, you certainly can. So now, 
without any more further ado, Sebastian, this is supposed to be a quick episode. What is your first number one best book of the Bible, according to you? Totally Ecclesiastes. Hands down, everybody. That should be everyone's favorite book. Just kidding. It's my own favorite book. Ecclesiastes, you're going to have to defend yourself there because that's um, definitely on a bottom percentage list of books that people even know about, let alone put as their number one book. So why would you put, <laughs> what is it? And why would you put it as your number one? Some people might think that's part of the Apocrypha just by that name, but in reality, it is in the Bible. So it's there. It was, we hold, it was written by Solomon. And I would say, actually, it is Solomon because there's some people who say, no, 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 maybe not. That's mm -hmm. King of Jerusalem and whatnot, son of David. So he, it is written in the later part of his life, and it sounds, it sounds, but it isn't. It sounds like a, like a grumpy old man talking about life, which in many ways, that's how I feel in the inside. Huh. If you get to hang out with me, sometimes you might get that vibe. Do I have a lot of wisdom to impart? Depends who you ask. The correct answer should be yes, uh -huh, but depends course. who you ask. And then based on the Ecclesiastes, it really reflects in how, how I tend to think because he's getting at something that I encountered with before because, you know, we, this is another, on another episode, we talk about our testimony, our, mm -hmm. our conversion and whatnot. And part of that for me was encountering a God from either from being Roman Catholic and then from pursuing other belief system out there and then being atheist and, and all of that check out our episode on our own testimony. Mm -hmm. Part of it is how everything is pointless and meaningless apart from God. Doesn't matter how good you are. Doesn't matter how much wisdom you acquire, how much knowledge you acquire, how, how hard you work. You're, you're all, we're all, all going to die. So just by taking those things on their own value, they're absolutely pointless. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But, but if you have God in the picture, if you put God at the center, you can then enjoy the work that you do. You can enjoy the good times you have with your friends, the good food that you have, the wisdom that you the things that you learn. You will never get to all to do all of that, but with God in the picture at your forefront, everything has meaning and purpose. That is why I like Ecclesiastes, the presentation that Solomon gives. No, I mean, it doesn't end in a very cheery way. It kind of ends like, oh, well, I guess God is the reason for everything is what it kind of sounds like to me. Um, but you're giving it a very cheery light. So I guess it goes as your number one. I had actually, in preparation for this episode, Sebastian, as well, because I was going through it before, uh, before we started this episode, I ranked every single book of the Bible just in my own taste so that I could get the full list to see what I was putting at the bottom to. And um, Ecclesiastes goes at number... 42 for me so we're a little different there in that one but it's a perfectly great book and you reference it like i said all the books of the bible are useful and the god's word and, and and good for teaching and admonishing and all that and building you up in the faith so it is a worthy 42nd on my list <laughs> what's your number one then uh well unlike you i wasn't going for like hipster points or trying to be different and unfortunately i definitely picked a very popular one to have as number one but i think it's one for a reason i have this one memorized actually so it's near and dear to my heart as a COVID project to memorize it all and that is none other than the gospel of matthew one of the reasons i love matthew um is that it is first of all one of the gospels i think the gospels 
as as much as I'd like to be different and, and pick some obscure book that people don't know about, there is a reason that the life of Jesus is so attractive and spawns the whole, I mean, his life, his teaching and everything. That's the, it's the story of his ministry on earth. And, and I love, happen to love Jesus. And when you read the gospels, even if you knew about Jesus before, so when I was a Christian, I was raised Christian, and I became a Christian before actually reading the gospels for myself. And I already knew that Jesus was the Lord. But when you hear the way he responds, you're like, yeah, <laughs> that's counterintuitive or like that's good. His word speaks, it lives, it moves the heart. And it really does. It's not like um, I'm not hyperbolizing. His word is is what wise. It's wiser than David or the others. When you read other people, sometimes they have like a good wine lighter. But pretty much everything Jesus says either hardcore challenges you or was just the perfect response in the moment. So I really like the Gospels for that reason. And I think Matthew is a particularly good gospel because as, as they're all pretty similar. Matthew is specifically references all the different prophecies that Matthew is suggesting that Jesus fulfilled and he's claiming that Jesus fulfilled. And so on that front, it connects the Old and New Testament, I think much better than some of the others that don't explicitly point out um, the Old Testament prophecies that he was fulfilling in those sections. Um, so that's one of the reasons I like Matthew. Now, of course, there's missing elements in every little gospel, right? There's things you wouldn't get if you only knew Matthew. So the other gospels are definitely on my list as well. Top high, but Matthew's my number one. Number two, Sebastian, what would you put as your number two book? I would put... No, that, that, that was trickier because, you know, we were doing that before beforehand. So... Mm. I haven't. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I have. Oh, no, I know, I know. Yes, yes, yes. You're going to have to remind me exactly what I put okay. because at that point I have five that could contend for number two. Yep. So You've got Ephesians as your number two. You want to defend that pick, Ephesians? Oh, yeah. You know, between Ephesians and Isaiah and Hebrews, for me, those would be my top two. But for Ephesians, I would rank it higher. Because, you know, the New Testament gets some variety in there. For Ephesians, it is a great mix of theology, explaining the purposes of God from eternity past. And, you know, we're both unashamed Calvinists. Yep. We, the whole, that's who we are here in, in the found cause. And God, Paul explains God's purposes right uh, front page of Ephesians, mm -hmm. right in the beginning. What was the plan from eternity past? In love, God created us and predestined us to be adopted into his household, his family, and for Christ to atone for us, even before the planet was made and all of that, which is just mind-blowing and shows how powerful and amazing God is. And then not just that it doesn't stay there but then once you have that solid foundation it then builds onto actual practical life advice on how can you edify yourself as a christian not edify yourself through the spirit how you can practice your sanctified and grow and then there's some admonition to to you know no shenanigans mm -hmm. about yeah, I, I, for all those reasons, for the Calvinist reasons, the predestination reasons, but also the admonition and the growth there, I put Ephesians as my number five. So your number two is my number five. And it is, spoiler alert, the only one that we match up on. So we both have Ephesians in our top five, which should tell you, the fact that we don't match up on anything but Ephesians in our top five, should tell you that the Bible has a lot of useful and great parts that speak to people differently. So again, it's not a knock on the other books of the Bible that don't make our top five. Um, even the ones that make our bottom five are not bottom tier books that you should not read. They just are least favorite of the 66, which there has to be. My number two was another 
basic boy, Christian boy, but whatever, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm putting my favorite books out there, so maybe I'm just a basic boy. It is Genesis. Uh, of course, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so everybody knows it, and I think most people would put it there as their number one or top five because it's the only one they know off the top of their head. It's got Adam and Eve, it's got Cain and Abel, it's got um, Jacob and Isaiah, or Isaac, not Isaiah, and Abraham, and um, the, the classic stories of the initial start of the world, and Noah and the, the Ark. So I think it's just too big of a book. To, it encompasses so much of the origins of the world, and it's got such mystery to it, um, like the Nephilim and how the pre-flood world was, and even how the post-flood world was, and who some of these characters they allude to that you don't know much about, like the um, like Nimrod, um, is he Sargon of Akkad, as we know in history, um, and it's and of course the whole element of Abraham shadowing the revel- uh, the redemption that is to come, Noah's covenant shadowing the rev- the redemption that is to come through Jesus and the fall of Adam and Eve, um, shadowing the way that Jesus would come and be the new Adam. So all that setup makes my Genesis number one. It also doesn't have a lot of like, it doesn't have any, to my knowledge, um, super boring sections. Uh, it's like big old ceremonial pieces in it. It's pretty much all narrative. There are genealogies in it. So I suppose if you think genealogies are terribly boring, um, that's boring. But the genealogies of Genesis are probably the, I, I think, the most interesting genealogies of the Bible because they're often paired with what those people went and did as opposed to just a name. So it gives you the genealogies down to Abraham, but it also gives all the people post-flood that were like the father of, and, and right pre-flood, the father of certain crafts or the father of the island people or the father of metalworking or whatever. And I think that's an interesting little tidbit. And um, some claim that those early ancestors um, even though they died after the flood, were the genesis and origin of the different, like, god of crafts um, mythos is out there. Like, the Greeks have the god of the forge and the god of war, and that those were actually alluding to um, the great men of the past. So, that's interesting, and why genesis is my number two. That will make sense, because there was a lot of, you know, demigod mm-hmm. worship in the Mesopotamia, and then eventually also in the Greek world, as you're alluding to. So, interesting. All right, we're flying through, Sebastian. What is your number three? I can tell you what it is, but I, would you like me to tell you, actually? You put John as your number three. Yes, yes. And that's also another nice contender. You know, for the, after, after Ecclesiastes, is, you know, they're all pretty close. So, for John, I really like the Gospel of John compared to the other Gospels. I mean, I like Matthew. I did teach for a whole year on Matthew, too. Yeah the youth sunday school but john i like better because the theology is explained clearly mm-hmm. very well in john and you know you also have some very direct references to the sovereignty and power of god which is you know double thumbs up for for me whenever i see that so that's always exciting and it's very detailed so i can appreciate i can appreciate I can appreciate that compared to some of other gospels that are a little bit shorter. Yeah, and John is particularly, like you said, the, the theology is more um, laid out, right? It starts with the whole, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And for that reason, I think it's a better book for people in cults um, who have a different view of Jesus than they should, um, whether it's other religions like Muslims or Hindus or Jewish people or Mormons or whoever. I think it's, I think it's more approachable than Matthew for everybody except for, I would say, Jewish people. Um, if you didn't know who Jesus was, I don't know that it's 
as useful as something like Matthew or Luke, which gives him historical context more because John like gives the whole, you know, in arcane, halogos, whatever the, the Greek is. In the beginning was the word, um, but it doesn't say he was born in Bethlehem. You know, it doesn't have some of the, the starter pack stuff. So I would say it's not as useful for people totally foreign to, to Jesus as a man and as a historical figure and God, but it does prove out his deity better than, than the other books. I don't have it in my top five, but it is it is a good book. My number three, and uh, I defend this one, another very basic boy book, but, you know, uh, somebody's got to be. This is Romans. Romans is a super, uh, there's a phrase, I think it came in the 1970s, 1980s here in the U.S. called the Romans Road, which is the road you can leave people down the gospel, and that is walking through Romans 1 through 8 that Romans 1 through 8 is essentially the whole pitch for the gospel, that you that there is sin, you've been separated from God, that everybody's a sinner without God, and that the only way to salvation is through the Messiah, and so come and live by faith, and that once you live by faith, you're justified, and you're in the story of God, and you'll be taken care of and live forever. forever. Um, that's the Romans road. So Romans is just a very solidly logical book that explains your need for salvation and how to attain salvation. And then equally and equivalently, it also goes on past the Romans road portion of it to talk about how the law applies to us today and how it doesn't apply to us today, which I think is a crucial aspect of living in especially today's day and age. It talks about how you should handle government and how you should handle your submission to government and when not to. In Romans 13, big conversation today, and people reference Romans 13 all the time. It also speaks to Calvinism. So it speaks to um, why did Jacob uh, get chosen by God and Esau not get chosen in Genesis. Um, again, that's why I put Genesis above Romans because I think Genesis gives some of the background, but Romans is the application of some of those early shadows. What do they mean? How do they apply today? So I think it's a pretty all-encompassing book. I would put it above Ephesians for that reason, is that it's just way more applicable than Ephesians. It's got more utility in it because it's longer and bigger. So Ephesians is great and says things more succinctly than Romans often, but Romans is just like an all-around Swiss Army knife of a book. If you wanted to point to one book in the New Testament that wasn't a gospel for using to... Um, convert somebody or help them understand something that's basic Christianity, it would be Romans. All right, we're cruising through. You're at your number four, Sebastian. Isaiah, defend. Why Isaiah? He did not make my top of five. Oh my gosh. You're picking some very, very, very well-known books. And I'm, actually, Isaiah is pretty well-known. So what am I saying? Isaiah is up there because I really like the style in which it's laid out. And this is a mixture of both uh, prophecy and also events that are happening right then and there when he speaks to kings. But also, we have messianic prophecies in Isaiah. So to me, that's exciting. That's a personal topic. That's passion that I have taught in my church. Christophanies, Christ appearances in the Old Testament. And then also prophecy about Christ in Matthew get a lot of references to Isaiah and how Jesus fulfilled those. And in addition, if you're every good Calvinist knows, actually maybe they don't know, they don't all know, but now you will know if you want to to see God's power displayed, Isaiah is a place to go to, particularly Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 46. And I'm looking at the Septuagint here, but you know what? It's really strange. So read from this and i was considering doing that but it reads the verbiage is a bit different so we will not do that but god declares the end from the beginning and he will do all that he pleases again displaying his sovereignty and 
power in creation. So Isaiah is definitely up there for me. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, what keeps Isaiah out of my top five for me, I mean, he's in, I think he's my number one. Yeah, I'm reading through my number one major prophet. Um, but keeps him out of the top five for me is that Isaiah is a huge book. So it does have the Messianic prophecies, which I love. I mean, okay. And I remember they're all the word of God. So I'm not dissing Isaiah as far as like, oh, it's inferior or something like that. It's just not making my top five. It's not even in my top 10. It's not so my number 15. Only because Whoa. there are huge portions of Isaiah that are like classic prophet speak, which is like, oh, woe to Esau, woe to Babylon. And I understand the context for it. Um, but because it's such a large portions of Isaiah, the portions of Isaiah that really shine um, are less. So the percentage of the book that's super great are less for me. Again, all of it's applicable, including the judgments on, on nations. I think it speaks to God's character and, of course, the history of what he did to those nations. But just, you know. Not my top ten, but I mean, Isaiah is a, a classic book. I think your your list so far is a little more eclectic than mine. I think Ephesians is a little more eclectic. Ecclesiastes is obviously rare to have as your number one, something to start parties with. And then Isaiah is. Um, I don't think it would be normally people's top five, so you can you can stay unique in that. My one unique list on my top five, although I have Ephesians at number five. If that's unique, it's not that unique. Um, this one is unique, I think, for being on my top five, and that is Deuteronomy. Number four for me is Deuteronomy. Now, most people forget this book. It's, one, it's the fifth book of the Bible, so it's my number four. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, meaning two, Deutero, two in Greek, and then nomos meaning law, is the second giving of the law. It's really a, a summary of all the, the law because the first, or second book of the Bible, Exodus, the third book of the Bible, Leviticus, and the fourth book of the Bible, Numbers, all have portions of God's law sprinkled in all of them, especially Leviticus. But Deuteronomy is a condensed version of all that law summarized into one book, which I think makes it much more readable than something like Leviticus. It strips out a lot of the laws that only pertain to the priesthood, and it also strips out all the descriptions of how they make. Like Leviticus has all the lengths and, and descriptions of how they made everything and how they should continue setting up the tabernacle because it was going to be their instruction manual for like when they went and did it. Um, so, of course, it's really boring to read out because it's just repeated instructions over and over again for portions of Leviticus. And so Deuteronomy cuts out most of that and has just the applicable moral, civil, and ceremonial law um, without all the the needless, especially for today, descriptions. So I love God's law. I think it's hyper applicable. Um, not to say that we are justified by the law because we are not, and not to say that the law is always applied like it was in Israel because it is not. However, um, it is the character of God. I think it surprises people because they envision God to be however they want, and Deuteronomy and his law show you how he really is and what he prescribes for real life and politics. And so I think it's pertinently useful for today's politics. I think it's also pertinently useful for knowing the character of God and how he wanted the nation to be run so deuteronomy is number number four also because it's unique and i gotta be a little unique to have it up there in my top five are you telling me you don't like to read or want to recreate the tabernacle or the ark of the covenant i don't like i said it's still the word of god so it's not like some straight diss of leviticus but those portions were certainly I think more, you cannot argue that they were not more useful when they still had the tabernacle and was setting things up. You can go into the symbolism um, of what the things that are inside the elements inside the tabernacle mean, but I am not one that thinks that all the numbers necessarily mean anything or that we know what the numbers meant, right? Like what does a seven foot pole mean or you know, a 10 foot cubit thing mean? I, it could be that they mean particular things, but it's not like any of that is explained. And I think we would be remiss to be putting meaning into a lot of the lengths of things. And so it's really just a description of what the things look like. And, and uh, you know, that's 
kind of boring, at least for me, because it's also very confusing what those descriptions mean. It's not a very um, visual, it's very math numbers, because again, it was what they were making and, and setting things up. So I understand the reason for those, but that makes kind of a boring book. Now on the note of Deuteronomy, we do have an episode in which we talk about good governance. And we do. Our laws, so shout out to that. Yes. And you, that's your time to shine. That's, your, that's when you shine and talk about what's a good law, what's immoral law. Yep, underrated book and underrated subject, Deuteronomy and God's love. Your number five, Sebastian, is a book that made my number eight, and that is Hebrews. What did you say about Hebrews? Why is it on your number five? It is up there because it is a beautiful summary of the theology of the Old Testament. So just like how Chronicles, and it's a book that no one ever reads, but I think it's actually worth the, the read. It's a summary of the history of Israel. Hebrews is a, what's that? People might think I'm insane for saying this, but a very concise and short and to the point summary of images, symbolism, and prophecy fulfilled from the Old Testament in the Messiah, which will be Jesus, of course. And the fact that it's able to touch on things that mean nothing to us non-Jews such as the you know the, the high priest we don't mm -hmm. i mean okay yes there are priests out there but they shouldn't be called priests we've gone over this before no yes. one is priests and same with mormons there's no priesthood of aaron or him calling himself the priest in the order of melchizedek so it's only one high priest jesus and then the author of hebrews which it's difficult to say exactly who it was which makes the book even more interesting Somehow, even though it's so, it's not Gnostic. We're not. We're past that. You know, it's not some rando who is just making up its own thing. It's tying it back, weaving it from the Old Testament, explaining how it's, everything is fulfilled, and then it's trying to show point to both a Jewish audience, saying that there's nothing to go back to. In other words, very important to many uh, fellow Jewish friends out there, we should not be building a second temple because. Yes, yes, my bad. Third temple. And we shouldn't bring back sacrifices because that's been done for. There's no other instructions. We've gone over this before in a recent episode, too, on Judaism. So watch that for more details. But it's pretty clear, concise, to the point. No temple anymore. Christ has fulfilled all of the symbolism from Genesis to the last book, which to us, Malachi, but to them would have been Chronicles. So it's mm -hmm. all done, taken care of. Here's how it happened. Let's let's now live our lives in Christ. Agreed. And for all those reasons, um, and like I said, for Matthew, the fact that it was connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament, I think is super cool and valuable um, to connect your full thread of the Bible together because not a lot of books do that bridge um, or explain that bridge very well. So I put Hebrews as number eight for that, that reason as well. So I defend your number five. And then my number five was your number two. And for the same reasons, it is Ephesians. So those are top five books. Matthew, Genesis, Romans, Deuteronomy, Ephesians in that order for me, and Ecclesiastes, Ephesians, John, Isaiah, and Hebrews for you. So only one match amongst the top five. And continuing down, uh, we didn't you didn't list all your 66 because it's kind of an insane thing to do, but um, you had a very different top 10 than me as well. You had Ecclesiastes, Ephesians, John, Isaiah, Hebrews. And then for six, you had Acts. Seven, you had 1 John. Eight, you had Daniel. Nine, you had 1 Kings. And then Judges at number 10. And again, this is not some scientific list, but it's just what we were listing at the top of our head. And then for six, I had Revelation, not Acts. You don't have Revelation in your top 10 at all. I guess you don't want the return of Christ. 
<laughs> not a very <laughs> pious Christian. I, I had Psalms right after the book of Revelation, so that's my number seven. I had Hebrews, number eight. I had John, so I had John in there as well at my number nine. And then I had Luke at number 10 and Mark right in there at my number 11. So my, my list goes, uh, gets the Gospels in there, all of them. You only have one. Once again, I guess I'm the more pious Christian, but you're the cooler, hipper Christian. Now, controversially, I should list, you didn't, you didn't get a bottom list of your uh, books of the Bible. And there are some um, really, really short books of the Bible that don't add much. Like I said, they're still the Word of God, so it's not some like straight diss in them. We're saying that they're not the Word of God or they're useless or something like that. They have uses, absolutely, and they're good for edifying, so they shouldn't be waxed in the Bible or anything like that. But my bottom five, starting with number 62, would be Philemon, Philemon, however you might say them. I think a lot of people say Philemon. I really detest like traditional American pronunciation because it sounds like it's like straight out of Hodunk, Alabama. Um, Sorry, Alabama. Um, but Philemon, as us Americans say, or Philemon, or Harry might say that. That's my number 62. People use it, again, just to attest to its use case. People use it often to talk about um, Christianity tolerating and then not usurping slavery and like our approaches to slavery. It's a very, very short letter. Um, I think besides that, it's not super useful. But yes, that is uh, definitely a use. Um, and people reference it a lot. So it gets in there. It's just really short. So it's my number 62. Second and third John are my number 63 and 64, respectively. Again, useful books written by the Apostle John, so that's all cool, and they have great stuff in them. They're ridiculously short. In fact, they're usually grouped together in some, like, compact versions of the Bible. They're just grouped together. They are labeled second and third John, but they're all on the same page because they're that short, um, which means they just don't have much to say, <laughs> like, except for, like, watch out. Watch out for false teachers, which thank you for the edification. Um, I put Titus at number 65. It's a really short, it's not a short second and third John, so maybe they should be below it, but Titus is another short. Um, I don't really know the main theme of Titus. I'm sure somebody could tell you, but it's another short book that just kind of, <laughs> if if you didn't have it as a Christian, you wouldn't be um, lost. Um, it's nice to have, of course, we want more of the word of God, but it's my number 65. And last book is a big book, but I put it at number 66, and maybe this, I already alluded to it, Leviticus. It's a long book. I love God's law. So this is not some, uh, like I am pro-homosexuality. So I put Leviticus at the bottom because it has that, that whole law about not sleeping with men. It's nothing like that. I just put Leviticus there because um, a lot of people think that Numbers is going to be the worst book of the Bible. Really boring because it's called Numbers. And surely Numbers is going to have a bunch of genealogies and, and numbers that you don't care about. Numbers does have genealogies, which is why it's called Numbers. It counts the number of, of people in each tribe um, a couple times. But far more numbery and boring than numbers because numbers has story in it the hebrews do things leviticus has no story in it at all and is all priest instruction so it has some law that is applicable and that's the bright spots of it and then it has a lot of descriptions of the lengths of tassels and the lengths of rods and and all this and the, the number of bowls and it repeats itself a lot because it's giving the description of each bowl like 10 bowls came from judah and 10 bowls came from from Naphtali, and they were all, and the ten bowls from Judah were made of uh, gold, and the ten bowls of Naphtali were made of gold, and it, it, like does that for all twelve tribes often. Incredibly monotonous, especially if you're like me and you feel the need to read the whole thing out loud, just so that you're respecting the Word of God in its entirety, and you're reading all these large instructional sections. It goes at number sixty-six. So again, does it have its use? Absolutely, and there are laws found only in Leviticus that are not repeated in Deuteronomy, so it absolutely has its use but it's number 66 because it is not a pleasure to read, typically much more of a pleasure to peruse instead of read straight through. So those are our top and bottom books. Do you have any highlight bottom books of the Bible that aren't, aren't there? Yeah, now you say it, I would probably throw Leviticus in, in, 
Yeah, and then Song of Songs. Oh, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. You don't like that sexy time stuff, huh? I can appreciate Solomon. It's just, you know, very, it's again, it's just bizarre to read. So I would actually rank the minor prophets above those ones. I find them much yeah. more interesting than. I mean, the thing, the thing you get out of Song of Solomon, like I put it in my number 43, the thing you get out of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs or whatever your version of the Bible says is that I think it tells you the appropriate limits to, um, to sexy love, right? Because it has sexy imagery and it's still considered the word of God. So it's absolutely appropriate sexual imagery. Um, and that's that's what I think its whole purpose is, is to keep us from being the prudes that I think uh, the nations think that we are. So, of course, we don't give in to worldly sexual craziness, but we do have sexuality, that God-given design sexuality. And I think that's what Song of Solomon is there for, to show you that sex is good. It's good between a man and a wife. That's what it's built for. It's a good, it's a God-given good, and it's good to be sexy. You don't have to be, like, only for procreation, um, only, like, the bare minimum. It can be sexy. Uh, and that's that's what it's there for. So, and that I think it's pretty useful, especially because that's a pretty common push from Christians and others to be anti-sex. Um, so that's why I put it forty-three instead of the bottom. But yes, it is not. Other than that, it's not like it's a particularly useful book. It's like one single psalm, essentially. So, in other words, this is quoting you. Don't be a Presbyterian. Uh, I mean, stone cold, no emotion. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just. Kidding. I mean, don't be a Presbyterian, but that's for other reasons. <laughs> Presbyterians are fine. They're fine. I yes, disagree with those some things, and frankly, Baptists can be more prude than Presbyterians. So, I don't know about that. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So, uh, last thing we wanted to talk on this episode, and again, we have other episodes about this, so this is not the all-encompassing episode, but we wanted to talk about how you read your Bible or why you do this. So. I think often you hear Sunday school teachers and moms and grandmas and everywhere saying, oh, don't forget to read your Bible or like, are you reading your Bible? And I think that becomes very kitschy and like Christian tier light where you're like, oh, yeah, of course, I need, I need to be doing that. Just like I need to be eating my vegetables, but like I don't want to. And so I don't, and I really don't like it when people keep nagging me to read my Bible because whatever, you know, it's boring. I've read my, I've quote unquote read my Bible before. I've cracked open a random page and it's like, who are all these people? This is boring. I'm, I'm going to sleep. I'm not reading this again. Or, or a whole list of reasons you might not have to read your Bible. So uh, let's testify a little bit about how we read our Bibles and why it is actually useful. So it's as cliche as it is to say, read your Bible, it is useful. And I would come up with like three reasons that I think it is. Sebastian, maybe you can testify of uh, how you read the Bible and um, why you testify that it's useful yourself. I don't read the Bible. I listen to it. Oh, you thought I was hey, going to hey, say something look else. At that. Yes, 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 yes. And that to me, it sticks much better than if I was to stare at a book and read it. I do that for once in a while. I listen and read at the same time in Spanish, mind you. So it's just my first language. Mm -hmm. Do as you wish. Read it in whatever language you want. But for me, I find it very enjoyable to do as I'm doing things, as I'm either cleaning, as I'm going on a run, as I'm going on a walk, as I'm driving. And you'd be surprised how much you're able to, you know, focus that on what you're listening to. And to me, it sticks. I remember it. And I've been able to go to plow right through the Bible multiple times. I say multiple times just doing that. You can do it 1.5 times speed mm -hmm. or 2 times speed. You can do 2 Maybe times not. speed. Truly, yes. In Spanish, you cannot do that. It's just 
very incomprehensible, so do not do that in Spanish. I'm warning ahead of time. So that's what I do. And then also, my suggestion is, you know, how some people say you're going to read chapter at a time or what, uh, or like, you know, verses, not even chapter, verses at a time. My suggestion is to focus on one chapter. So if this is the first time you're ever doing this, listen to the whole chapter. Again, this is if you have no experience, if you're doing it for the first time, listen to the whole chapter. And then make sure you to pause and understand what's being said. Did you actually understand it? Did it just fly right through you? And if so, listen to it again. Or read read it again if that's what you're doing. But mm-hmm. take it on a step at a time. Why my advice would be I like to focus on books at a time. If you are inclined to do more topical subjects, you can do that. Such as, you know, if you're interested in predestination, for example, Ephesians or Romans would be a fine place to start for those. But I tend to like you know, to do that, go on books, on books at a time, just for the sake of getting the whole picture. Right now, my interest is on the the books everyone forgets are there, like First and Second Kings, and then also Chronicles, to make sure I understand and grasp the history of Israel, because I. I feel like I understand the theology of the priesthood, sacrifices and all of that, the fulfillment in the New Testament, but now I want to understand how that actually plays out in Israel. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing. That's more topical in my case at this point. And if you want to, you know, be a normal person, you can always get a Septuagint or a Hebrew Bible and then you can read that too. And then compare the Masoretic text with the Septuagint. That would be not a normal person if you're going to get a little deeper. Yes, I think much more easy than going and getting a Septuagint would be looking up the Bible online. Most Bible things that you find for free online these days, Bible Hub, Blue Letter Bible, wherever you're going, have some sort of way to look into the Greek. So if you are if you want to look at the Hebrew, you want to look at the Greek, there's some way to like click on the text and figure it out, and it'll tell you what the translation is of that Hebrew or of that Greek and where else it's used. That's probably the most useful way to dive deeper. Um, and if you want to fill out your library and be a, a real cool dude like Sebastian, you can go and buy the actual physical versions of both if you'd like and learn Greek, that too. I would say, I think one of the most common ways that people prescribe reading the Bible and like big churches, I know mega churches that I used to be part of, um, and even probably my church today, although I don't know exactly what to do because it's not as advertised for getting people to read the Bible. They have Bible reading plans and those Bible reading plans like always flip between New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament. And at some point they get you every single word that's in the Bible, but it's often not linearly like they won't walk through all of matthew and all of exodus at the same time they'll be like flip-flopping everywhere based on some convoluted system they've got i think that that's fine if you already know the bible but if you're a newbie i would not start with I and mean, you can do that and my, my own younger brother he read the whole bible doing a plan like that where he's flipping through the old and new testament at the same time i feel like it's kind of distracting forget where you are um but it's a way, I think it's also a way of getting through books like Leviticus, that if you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to do a chapter of Leviticus, and then I'm going to go two chapters of Matthew, which is a funner book to read. So I suppose it has its merits to flipping through, but I would think if you aren't, if you don't think of yourself as a very disciplined reader, I would just plot away at the Bible, chapter at a time. Um, if you do it a chapter at a time, there's no rewards for speed unless you have to like take an exam or something. Um, but if you get through the whole Bible, you can take a slow and study a chapter a day. will eventually let you finish the Bible at uh, within about uh, two years is the time frame. So if you really haven't started it and you want to genuinely start it, but you're not a dedicated reader, just do a chapter a day. 
and you will get through the Bible eventually. And it's really a chapter a day is what, five minutes? I mean, I, I do it myself. My regular Bible reading is a chapter a day, and then I do more if I am in the mood or I wanted to read on a particular topic, like you said, but at minimum a chapter a day, and it is no time at all. We all know, people often say, oh, I'm too busy or whatever. <laughs> nobody's too busy for five minutes no, a day. No, and there's no, no. really no excuse like you said sebastian you can listen to it audio um and, and i think audio is actually superior to the text depends on how you learn how you read but audio is like my preferred way to listen now i don't do that with the bible that much because i'm only reading a chapter so it's almost more hassle to, like pull up the audio thing than to and to whip out my bible and read one chapter however um if you're going to go through large swaths of the bible and you haven't read a particular book before it's super easy and useful to do free the U version Bible, the Bible app. And there's like a million apps out there for free on your phone that, that will play it audioly for you and any version of the Bible that you want. All that being said, the philosophy behind why you should read your Bible is twofold, I would say. One, it's easy. Uh, that was the third point that I mentioned previously. One, it's easy these days. It's so easy to, to plot through it. Um, it's readily accessible. There's really no excuse. Two, the only way you're going to know what God voice sounds like what god's character is like what god would have you do in certain circumstances is by reading his word you can learn from preachers you can learn from non-bible books you can learn from your friends but none of them are infallible and none of them speak as clearly to god's character as his own word does and so if you're in any situation in life where you are wondering what is the correct course of action and you don't know what god would think about it right with the principles that god has laid out you should have been reading your Bible so that you'd know how God acts because we really should be acting like God on earth, not how we shouldn't. You know, we shouldn't be acting in place of God. We should be acting like God would have us act, being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So if we know how he has acted in the past, that's why the history portions of the Bible are super useful. If you know how he's acted in the past, it's eminently useful to plot our future. And then equally, all the corrective statements in the New Testament are also very useful for our daily lives. So the practical aspect of knowing what God once for us is by reading the Bible, yes, including the boring parts. That's part of God's character. And my third reason, the third point of why you should be reading the Bible, not only is it easy, not only is it practical, it is also the only way you're going to be able to determine who's speaking to you in your times of doubt. Because, for, for example, you might get a feeling, and we do we do make decisions based off our feelings as much as we don't want to and as much as we should be doing things purely logically or purely with our heads. Um, we, I think... You need your head and your heart and your body all aligned to make any decision, right? If you want to eat something, your heart first says, I'm hungry. Your body says, your body is the thing that goes and picks up the apple and eats it. And your brain is the thing that says, I'm hungry, therefore I'm going to eat this apple. And you reach out and grab the apple and eat it. All your body needs to be aligned to make any decision. Therefore, you really do need your feelings aligned with your thoughts to do any action. And often your feelings are the weakest part of you next to your body and then finally your mind. And the enemy and your own flesh and the world love to attack your feelings first. And the only really way you can discern feelings um, between your own feelings, the feelings of the enemy they might be putting on your heart, and God's feelings and thoughts and whatever else might be put in your head are, is by knowing how God sounds and knowing his word. And if you don't read his word, you won't be able, you will not be able to discern between a demon, yourself, the world, and God. You will not be able to discern it because the enemy loves to disguise itself as an angel of light. And you are also pretty easy to deceive yourself thinking that something is God's will for you and it's just your own thoughts. And you, so you might get a feeling that says, it would be good for me to eat that other candy bar, right? And if you don't know what God's word sounds like and how he normally speaks in the Bible, You'll be like, is that God speaking to me right now? I should eat that other candy bar and it's really, it's really just you or it's a demon or whatever, right? Uh, worse things than candy bars. Um, 
if you don't know how God sounds, you will actually, and, and well-meaning Christians, I think my ex-pastor from my church um, said that God was leading him away from the church, um, I think for a much worse liberal church, and I think he mistook his own flesh for God, and I do think the remedy to that is ultimately more and more Bibles that you know more and more how God sounds, so that when you hear something, you instinctively know, okay, I've read that kind of thing before, that's the voice of God, or I've read something that is not the voice of God. So if you don't read the Bible, you really have no way of discerning what is God's voice and what's not. And it's important to remember that's a constant struggle until we get the second part of our promise that we all forget about. Our soul has been redeemed. Again, the wrath of God is not upon us because we have repented and trust in Christ because he has perfected everything. But our bodies are still blood. Mm -hmm. And the second part of the promise of God is we're going to get new bodies that are being, that will be sinless, that will be apart, apart from sin. So until that day comes, even super people in the Bible like uh, Elijah, he experienced weakness. He like he he could summon fire from heaven for crying out loud, and he could sprint really fast. Very funny. That's uh -huh. actually, that's why Kings is up there for me. Very funny, very funny book. Very dark humor sometimes, but um, all these people, the Apostle Paul, who could who could do miracles and whatnot, they had moments of weakness. So if these super people have moments of weakness and failure, how much more will we, who can't call fire from heaven or part waters? to make hundreds of thousands of people cross. So hence why we need to remain focused. And as I like, as my church likes to focus on, you read the Bible to not just know about God, but to know God. Mm -hmm. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. I would go farther than that. No, it's not just a matter to balance it. It's not just a matter of also some of our charismatic friends would say to just you know feel hang out with god experience god yes that is important but you also if you love god you will want to know as much as possible about god because you care about him hopefully that made some sense yep so once again theme there is that the bible is legitimately important it's not just grandma's telling you it's not just your limp-wristed pastor telling you it is the actual word of god if you take christianity seriously you will read and love his word so if you don't take it seriously you can you can still be saved by the skin of your teeth but you're really wasting your time here on earth so we would implore you to at least dedicate yourself to regularly reading reading the word of god if not um, multiple times a day, if not in large chunks, at least a chapter a day, something like that. So you're getting consistent word of God into you so that you consistently know your God. And that is why we've found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. I've been Michael the Man Behind the Machine. And to my virtual friend has been... Sebastian the Bookkeeper. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to boundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. That's the audio only. If you want to see our lovely faces, beautiful and shining, you can go to facebook.com forward slash boundcause where we post our videos first, or you can go to youtube.com and search us up boundcause there where we post a week later. And you can also find us on iTunes and Spotify and wherever else you might find your podcast. So until next time, when we react to somebody, I believe, on our schedule, I've been Michael. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.